0: From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. My name is Ben and I'm a 2L here at Loyola and an associate editor with The Podvocate this year. On this week's episode, Supreme Courting part two, I discuss the seminal US Supreme Court case USB Booker I, along with my guest, Professor Dean Strang, move away from the legal facts of the case and discuss the experience of litigating in the Supreme Court. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our Instagram at The Podvocate. So, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, for those of you who listened to part one of Supreme Courting, we are covering. I am joined here by loyal Professor Dean Strang, who sat second chair for a United States Supreme Court case in 2005, United States v. Booker. And part one covered the substance of the case, but part two is going to cover the experience of the case. And I'd like to move away from the facts and legality and talk about a little bit more about the oral argument portion of this experience. And just to start off, I'm curious what does the preparation for an oral argument in this environment look like?
1: If you're doing it right it's it's intense, lengthy um, and multifaceted um, and and Chris Kelly, the lead lawyer for Freddie Booker, and I did it right I think um, so we we took a preliminary um that that's not that's not true. I'm confusing U.S. Supreme Court cases. It had had it been possible, we would have taken a preliminary trip to D.C. to watch other Supreme Court arguments for a day, something like that. Here, that was not possible because Booker was set for argument on the very first day of the term, on what's the first Monday in October. Uh, but Chris had argued a significant case in the U.S. Supreme Court before. Also a sentencing guideline issue, actually, on whether with LSD or other drugs that have uh, a medium on which they're attached, whether you weigh the blotter paper or the other medium as part of the weight of the drug to calculate the offense level. Um, He had argued that case as to LSD, whether you weigh the blotter paper that the LSD was on or not.
0: What do you do? Do you weigh it?
1: Gosh, I think it was a case called Chapman against the United States, and I think the answer was, yeah, you weigh the blotter paper. I mean, you know, typical sort of if we can make this more severe, we're going to uh, attitude. Um, I had also argued a case in the U.S. Supreme Court before, also on a sentencing guideline issue when those were mandatory, um, so both of us had been in the US Supreme Court before and had, you know, and, and had argued a case before. Uh, but we still would have had had it been possible as a matter of the court's own schedule, we would have gone and watched arguments to see okay, what's the current composition of the court doing? Just what's the vibe? What's the dynamic? Um here we couldn't do that, but what we could do is a whole lot of moot courts. Um After we were done with briefing, we essentially began that mooting process immediately with local moot courts, you know, we put together in Wisconsin um, with good lawyers, we may have had a judge or two, you know, involved. Uh, I know we had a law professor or two involved on various moot court panels. You do as many of those as you have time to do um, and get as many different You know, intelligent lawyers or law professor types from coming from different perspectives, different experiences to to sit and play U.S. Supreme Court justices for you. And then we went to uh, D.C. well before the argument and made use of Georgetown University Law Center's program for Supreme Court advocacy. Um, we also made use of lawyers from a large law firm that does a lot of pro bono work for the federal defender community, um, you know, makes themselves available, their Supreme Court practice group, available to federal defenders to consult, to take a case over if that's what the federal defender's office wants, whatever it may be. So, with, with that firm um, and the the folks at Georgetown Law Center, uh, we had additional moots there. And we were joined in at least some of those moots by the fanfan Fan team. There was a Boston lawyer named Rosemary Scopiccio who represented was, you know, counsel of record for Duke and FanFan, Fan, and then a, a lawyer in Portland, Maine, who had been directly involved in FanFan's trial. Uh, there who were on the fan fan team. So we combined teams and did at least some joint moot courts um because argument was going to be split between the, the booker team and the fan fan team on the defense side. And one of the really cool things that Georgetown University Law Center has, in addition to an Olympic-sized swimming pool for its students, that you can watch yeah. from the lobby of the law school. Uh, one of the things it has is a is a real full-size mock-up of the US Supreme Court's courtroom. So when you do a, a moot court, you know, a, a moot oral argument at Georgetown, you're in a, a room that looks like the US Supreme Court, uh, courtroom. And the, the folks in that program put together a panel of nine people to play justices, and those nine Nine people, for us, and I assume this is still generally true, those nine people all were former law clerks to U.S. Supreme Court justices, and, you know, relatively recent. I mean, they were none of them, I don't recall any of them as being older than about 40 on our, you know, our Georgetown moot. So you've got Georgetown professors and others, you know, uh, folks in practice of big law, but the common denominator is they've all been you know, law clerks to a US Supreme Court justice and have some insight into at least how one justice, the one for whom they worked, is likely to react to the issues in the briefing. They read your briefs. Um, so you get a really great scouring um, in in moot, mooting the argument at Georgetown. And I, we also had some other moots that large law firms, Uh, sponsored. So by the time Chris actually stood up on that first Monday in October in the well of the U.S. Supreme Court, Chris probably had had, without exaggeration, probably had had 15, maybe more, moot court experiences on this case. Um, He was really well prepared in addition, as I say, to having been there before. He wasn't a rookie in the U.S. Supreme Court himself. But that 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 was the preparation process, and then a lot of just noodling between chris and me and then and the and the third lawyer who was as I said in the federal defender office, he was a younger lawyer, but um contributed substantively to the to the whole process,
0: yeah, and I think what's really unique about the appellate level and it's similar on the trial level as well, but I really think you're you're prepping for the justices, right? I think what's really interesting about the preparation that you discussed was, first of all, a surreal amount of resources. And it's they're necessary, right? For preparing to be in front of the Supreme Court. But what's really interesting to me is that you're really preparing for each individual justice and trying to expect what their individual reaction is going to be. It's not that you're preparing to speak in front of nine people, but you really need to take into account what each of their perspectives are, what their prior rulings are, right? You, you are exactly right about that. that. That is exactly right, at least if you're doing this
1: correctly, in my view. You know, if you're meeting the standard of practice you ought to meet. You are, you, you are also preparing to speak to nine justices, okay? Because most of us have never done that. Uh, you know, federal appeals have panels of three. Rehearings on banc with a full um, federal court of appeals are quite rare, um, so many people never have a, a oral argument before an on banc federal court of appeals, and many state supreme courts have only seven justices or even only five. So, you are preparing to to meet a panel of nine, which you know requires you to swivel your head from end to end, you know, to just to make eye contact with all of them, but you are exactly right, Ben, that you are also doing your preparation with an eye to each individual justice and the best information you can get about the likely reaction of a, a given justice. You're also researching you know, past uh, majority opinions, concurrences, dissents that each justice may have written on anything relating to the topics at stake in your coming oral argument. So you're you're right, it's a a very broad um, and in-depth kind of preparatory process if you're doing what you ought to do, in my view. There are lawyers who don't do that and it winds up showing in their performance at oral argument um, but lawyers who are in what are increasingly um, common Supreme Court practice groups or appellate practice groups that have a Supreme Court focus at the Jenner and Blocks, the Kirkland and Ellis's, you know, uh, the Wilmer, Hale and Pickering or Wilmer Cutler, Hale, whatever it's called now, you know, at these very large firms that have sophisticated. Uh, appellate practices and have Washington, D.C. offices, those firms, which handle a lot of this Supreme Court litigation these days, they are invariably doing it right in terms of preparing for an oral argument. And they do it right on the pro bono cases they handle just as on the well-paid cases that they handle.
0: Do you think that there is, I assume other than just like the scale of it, But do you think there are any concrete differences between the type of preparation that goes into preparing for an oral argument in front of, in this case, right, the Seventh Circuit, in front of, you know, Judge Posner and Easterbrook, to kind of notoriously, to me, maybe as a law student, very intimidating justices or judges? Um, Is there any difference between the the preparation for that stage of the case and the Supreme Court, or is the Supreme Court kind of just um, on a grander scale? No, there are differences. There
1: are distinct differences between preparing for an oral argument in front of an intermediate federal court of appeals and preparing for the U.S. Supreme Court. Both require preparation. <laughs> you should be doing moot court. I would hope, yeah, both, both of them. Although you know, two or three moot court, you know, for a for a intermediate appellate oral argument usually suffices. But the the real substantive differences is that. In an intermediate court of appeals, you're going to have a shorter period of time in the Seventh Circuit on a criminal case, usually 10 minutes per side, sometimes 15 minutes. 15 minutes per side is probably the norm if you look at other circuits, but a shorter period of time than you're going to have in the U.S. Supreme Court, for one. And for two, actual appellate arguments in intermediate appellate courts tend to be fact-driven. They tend to be focused on the record. These are higher volume appellate courts. The judges don't have the time to dig in to the, the factual record from the trial court below. Um, you know, They're just dealing with a higher volume of cases and a faster pace. And so what, what federal appellate judges tend to need from lawyers is what happened? What happened in the district court? You know, Where did you make an objection? Did you make an objection? How did the court rule? You know, what question did the jury ask? How did the judge answer that question? Very f- factual uh, questioning is the norm. Very little questioning about what does this case mean or what does that case mean? or is you know, is your case closer to precedent A or closer to precedent B? Very little of that, normally, in an appellate, you know in an intermediate appellate um, oral argument. At the U.S. Supreme Court where each justice has four law clerks. Um, They've got a a smaller docket at least of cases to which they're going to give plenary consideration and hear oral argument. Um, And they're, they're resolving conflicts of law, not just application of settled law to a new set of facts. They're resolving actual conflicts of law or hard legal questions there you have something that gets closer to, it's not like, but it's closer to your typical law school moot court experience, where the questions may be about cases. The questions very often are about implications of the advocate's argument, if the court were to accept it, implications of that for the next case down the line, for the future. You know, what would be the limits on our holdings? are there principled limits to the, you know, the outcome that one side or the other is proposing? Um, and it's a faster game in the U.S. Supreme Court. One, because you've got nine justices, not three judges, okay? But two, also, I think U.S. Supreme Court justices, in a sense, are in a unique position in the American legal system because of the breadth of issues they see. They see cases coming out of state courts that address federal issues. They see circuit splits on everything under the, you know, under federal law, from patent and trademark, you know, to antitrust to criminal to issues of the federal rules of civil procedure. On and on. They see they see the entire expanse of at least American federal law because of their jobs. And so their ability to see connections from seemingly disparate areas of law is really quite remarkable. And I also would say that, you know, whatever the failings of the political process of nominating and confirming U.S. Supreme Court justices, for the most part, you know, whether you agree or disagree with a given justice, like or don't like that justice's worldview, respect or don't respect that justice. I gotta tell you for the most part, these are pretty smart lawyers. They're pretty smart people.
0: I would hope um, I would hope so.
1: No, you would hope so. And it turns out to be true, I think. I, you know, the, the two arguments, Booker and the earlier case I had in the U.S. Supreme Court, I walked out the doors thinking that on the whole, Merits aside, that the pinnacle of our federal judicial system showed itself pretty well. You know, that the process worked like you would you would want to think as a law student, it ought to work. Um people dug in, they took the issue seriously, they gave it, you know, they gave it their best, it appeared to be given it their best. Um and, you know, so so that overall, I, that's what I see
0: the differences as being. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I think two points. One is, is I think a lot of law students, especially at Loyola, Bell Law law students across the country, they do moot court. And it's really interesting to hear you say that moot court more closely resembles the Supreme Court level as far as the types of questions that you get um, than the actual appellate level, which is what moot courts are designed to Resemble.
1: Yeah. And, and and look, law school court competitions aren't particularly close to an actual U.S. Supreme Court argument either, but they're closer to that than they are to the putative purpose of these, which is to prepare you to argue in intermediate appellate courts. Um, they just don't turn out to be very predictive of how those arguments actually work because those arguments tend to be so driven by the record driven by factual questions, and short. Um, And also, we're we're lucky in the Seventh Circuit, from my perspective, we're we're quite lucky in the Seventh Circuit in that you almost always have a hot panel in the the Seventh Circuit, meaning you get questions, usually from more than one judge, but certainly from at least one judge who's really engaged and prepared and, 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 and interested in the arguments. There are other federal courts of appeals where you can stand up for 15 minutes and, and get nary a question or get one question that's not particularly insightful or thoughtful. Um, and that, that, of course, is not what you get in a, in a law school moot court competition. And, and you shouldn't be getting that in real life. It's just unfortunately, you know, sometimes you get a pretty cold panel that just doesn't have
0: much visible interest in the issues on that appeal. That is every law student's, like, greatest nightmare in doing moot Court is preparing and realizing that they're not going to ask you any questions. So it's scary to hear that it actually plays out in real life. And the second part of my question, you mentioned in part one, that Breyer had a very particular interest in this case, given his Prior career as general counsel for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, um, but I was wondering what what justices seem to take a very particular interest in this case. Like which ones were the most active in the oral argument part?
1: As I recall, it uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer, I think, was active. Um, I think Justice Souter was heard from. I think Justice O'Connor had. Questions, if I recall correctly, um, but everybody understood that Scalia was the conductor or the, or the, you know, the engineer on the Apprendi train. Um, that that it didn't. You didn't have to be very bright to figure that out before you got to oral argument, and he very much um, displayed that at oral argument. He had a large and ebullient personality anyway you know he he would sometimes play to the gallery with his questions uh he had a good sense of humor uh he just was a very large personality and and an ebullient uh self-confident personality that he projected at least at oral argument um justice o'connor by comparison was somebody who, who asked questions not to needle one of her colleagues or not to make a rhetorical point to one of her colleagues, which is the reason for many questions that U.S. Supreme Court justices ask. They're just bouncing the question off the advocate to try to make a point to a colleague. Justice um, O'Connor, by comparison, at least in that argument, as I recall, was asking questions because she wanted to know the answer. You know, she she really wanted to hear what the solicitor general had to say or what defense counsel had to say uh, about some of the questions. I thought they were, in that sense, very direct and and sort of good faith questions. Um, Justice Souter was was somebody who was very judicious, you know, very judicial, if, if, if for want of a better word. He he didn't come across as an advocate. He didn't come across as having an axe to grind, so to speak. Um, but came across as, as scholarly and, and thoughtful by demeanor and also, you know, sort of a Yankee. <laughs> you know, a, a quiet. fewer words is better than more words, sort of uh, demeanor, uh, as I recall. So they very they very much have distinct personalities, just as all people do. Um, and that, that's on display in an oral argument.
0: You know, the textbooks, especially the con law textbooks or the crim pro textbooks, wherever you're reading a Supreme Court case, they never really give a big deep dive into the Supreme Court justices, their background, their personality, their leanings in general. I think it's really fascinating. Um, and I just think it's kind of surreal. I mean, they're celebrities in in, in their own Right, right and it's just must be kind of surreal just to be standing in front of them i guess in your case sitting but watching and just seeing every, everything you've heard about them kind of just playing out in real time it is
1: it is it, and it's a and it's a hoot it's it's fun if you can get over the nerves you know and you should have nerves if you're standing up in the u.s supreme court um you want to have you know a, you want to be nervous uh, Um, at some level as a matter of focus and motivation and you're going to be nervous no matter what but if you can if you can sort of take a deep breath and try to enjoy the moment yeah you know the names and you recognize the faces of these people and now there you are you know and then any any of the nine of them can ask you a question at any given moment and you've got to try to deliver. Um, I think for me the you know you used the term surreal and maybe the most surreal um, aspect of that morning in the US Supreme Court was before the court came out and took the bench but the lawyers were all assembled and a lot of people in the in the gallery one you know the media were following this case and you know, criminal lawyers on both prosecution and defense side. were following it, obviously. But it also was the first day of the term. You know, see, we had that that background interest that, oh, that, you know, the Supreme Court is starting up again. This is the first morning of the fir- of the term. Um, so it was a it was a crowded courtroom and the lawyers were there. The court had not the justices hadn't yet taken their seat. And I thought, well, as the second chair here is the guy who's not delivering the oral argument, what one thing I could do that would be useful for poor Chris, as he's you know trying to
0: just get his game face on, staring and at him. himself in the bathroom mirror, just trying to like get in, his in the zone. moment.
1: Uh, I thought one useful thing I could do is is just handle the pleasantries with opposing counsel. And so I I walked into the well, you know, the middle of the well of the courtroom and the Solicitor General and the Deputy Solicitor General met, you know, met me there and we shook hands and exchanged pleasantries, you know, the kinds of things you should do. And the, it was the Solicitor General of the United States. He may have still been acting at that point, but he eventually at least became the Solicitor General of the United States. And he was at least acting in that capacity at the time. He was the one who actually argued for the government. And then the Deputy Solicitor General who was in charge of criminal cases in that office, uh, Michael Drubin also was present in my role as, as second chair. Um, and so I walked up and Paul Clement was the Solicitor General and Michael Drubin was there and they were in, you know, the formal attire that the Solicitor General's office wears, morning formal attire, tails and, uh, you know, striped pants and that kind of thing. And, it's so uh, wild
0: to me that that still exists in it's art. Still,
1: it's absolutely still what they do. It's
0: better than wigs, um, though. I'll say so, it's better than wigs.
1: So I walked up to shake hands, and both of them said, hey, you're from Wisconsin. And I said, yes. Well, Paul Clement was born and raised in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and Michael Drebin had gone to law school at the University of Wisconsin. He wasn't from Wisconsin, but he'd gone to law school um, at the University of Wisconsin. So we had this you know, we had this surreal conversation about the Badgers and the Bucks and the Brewers and the Packers, their, you know, moments before the US Supreme Court uh, was going to take their seats and, and the oral argument was going to begin. We're just chitty chatting about Badger sports and about Wisconsin in general. Um, and I was really struck by how at ease. Uh, the Solicitor General and the Deputy Solicitor General felt in that courtroom. But of course, they'd had, certainly Michael Drebin had had dozens of oral arguments in that same courtroom in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, the kind of experience you don't get anywhere other than in the Solicitor General's office of the United States. And Paul Clement, who was a young guy, he was, what I'm not sure he was 40 uh, when Booker was argued, uh, this was not his first rodeo either. He, he had delivered oral arguments in that courtroom to that court before. Um so you know, my one prior oral argument as somebody from Wisconsin who didn't practice there regularly really paled, right? And and the the comfort level really struck me at the time. And indeed, then when the you know the Supreme Court Marshal yelled, oh yeah, oh yeah, and everybody came to order and the justices took their seats coming through the red velvet curtains behind them. And uh, when that all happened, and the United States as petitioner then got to go first and had an hour of oral argument time, probably reserved 10 minutes or something for rebuttal, I don't remember now, but the Solicitor General of the United States walked up That moment watching that happen changed the way I do oral arguments forever because Paul Clement walked up to the lectern without a thing in his hand. He had not a piece of paper with him. He had nothing on the lectern in front of him. He was up there in the moment with nothing to look at other than the members of the court. And he held forth extemporaneously, without a note, without anything for 50 minutes, um, on that oral argument. And I said, I'm never again going to take a piece of paper up to the lectern with me. I'm doing this, I'm doing this with what's in my head and only what's in my head. And that's what I've done ever since.
0: It's, it's really impressive to see someone do it at that, at that level. Right. And I think that something that stresses a lot of law students out, especially the ones that do moot court or the ones that, Give oral arguments, legal writing is everyone tries to figure out their system. And are they going to memorize their brief? How are they going to put together a document that summarizes their brief? Um, What kind of preparation goes into that? And I do think that one, a lot of people um, aren't confident in how much they know off the top of their head. But I think the level of preparation that goes into memorizing your brief or knowing all the facts and being prepared to go up there, I think it allows for. A smoother, more relaxed give and take between the justices. Correct? No question.
1: <clears throat> and it and it means you make eye contact, and you're watching for facial reactions and micro expressions. You know, you're just more engaged and therefore more engaging, I think, because your nose isn't looking at a piece of paper in front of you, or you're not fumbling around through the blue brief or the red brief, or you know, whatever it is. Um, you are just in the moment because you're forced to be. And that turns out to be a more effective and believe it or not more comfortable way to do an oral argument. But I, I tell you, I, 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 I've never seen Paul Clement again in person but I, I, I have to credit him for changing fundamentally part of the way I practice law, changing the way I handle an oral argument. Um, he did by example. His argument was magnificent. I think he knew the day the case wasn't going to go his way. The questioning made you know made that a pretty good guess, Um, but he but he he absolutely gave that side of the case you know the best that anybody could have given it.
0: And it's also interesting the level of preparation that goes into um, memorizing or going up there without any materials. I think there's this really interesting um, documentary about four ACLU lawyers called The Fight. And in the documentary, one of the lawyers is preparing to go up in front of the Supreme Court. And he too is practicing to go go up there extemporaneously without any notes. And he's memorizing, kind of memorizing this speech or this brief, but every six seconds, he would interrupt himself with one, no card of a hundred different possible questions that the Supreme Court justices could ask. And then he would answer that question and then go back to reciting his brief. Um, and it was just such an interesting behind the scenes. I'm not saying that, you know, Paul Clement did that, but I mean, that's the kind of level of preparation you need to do in order to feel comfortable up there without any materials
1: that and some prior experience actually doing it, I think. oh, <laughs> yeah,
0: helps if you're lucky enough to have that to cool the nerves. so, Professor, as we wind down here, you know, what advice would you give to law students um, at Loyola, but elsewhere as well, who may be interested in the appellate litigation process?
1: Do it. Um, You may never get to the U.S. Supreme Court. The odds are heavily against any of us ever getting there even once, but you can get into intermediate state appellate courts, uh, state Supreme Courts, intermediate federal Uh, appellate courts you can get there um that's not hard to do to get in there and if if you have a case that's going there i i think you know you do your briefing and you, you know get yourself ready but when you're when you're turning to thinking about the oral argument go sit and watch that court watch oral arguments in that court for a couple of days or three days you know you may spread that out over a period of weeks, but you have to go watch uh, oral arguments, I think, and be prepared to see a lot more negative examples than positive examples about how to do an oral argument. A lot more examples of what not to do than what to do, um, because most oral arguments, you know, aren't done very well uh, by the lawyers doing them. Um, but if it's something you want to do, then lean into it Go, go watch, find the occasional person who's really good, watch what they do, decide what fits authentically with who you are as a lawyer and then you know, try to um, adopt or adapt what you can that, that's gonna work for you and, and make sure you avoid the visible mistakes that you'll see lawyers make um, if you watch oral arguments even for a morning. You know,
0: and I, I I think you ought to watch them for a few days. It's really interesting. I think that a lot of people say, a lot of professors and lawyers in general, they always say the best experience that you can get in preparing for moments like these are observing court, both at the appellate level, as you say, oral arguments, but also for people that are interested in trial court litigation as well. It's going yes. and being yes. there, right?
1: Yes. Just watching. Watching and learning, trying to filter was that a, was that effective? Was that not effective? Um, do, do I think that worked? Do I think that didn't work? If it didn't work, why didn't it work? I'm just asking yourself that question from the gallery. Yeah, and that's as, that's as true with trial work as it is with appellate work. I agree with you.
0: And I think it's what scares a lot of people is the fact that everyone has a different method, both for preparation and for giving oral argument. And there's obviously things that work but certain things work for certain people and that they don't work for everyone. And I think it's really hard to find what works best for you. Um, and in but that in the which way case... to do that,
1: the way to do that is to value authenticity. The way to do that is to not try to imitate someone else, not try to be someone else. Try to be the best version of you, you can be. And then ask yourself, you know, I thought that worked really well for that lawyer. Is that something that would be authentic if I did it? And if it's not, how can I extract from that what was effective and adapt it to what's authentic for me? You know, what my skills are, what makes me persuasive. And that all starts with authenticity. Not trying to be Ben Racked, but trying to be the best you you can be, which may which does involve learning from the things Ben does well and Ben doesn't do well. But ultimately, you're you're trying to be true to who you are and just be the best version of yourself you can be. That's really what's persuasive in the end, that and being prepared and thoughtful.
0: And that's an inspiring message that I think is best to close, it's just to, best to close out on. Because I do think that ultimately at the root of it all, what we've talked about today, I mean, that is that's everything. I think that no matter what level you get to, you know the core of being a lawyer is authenticity and knowing what works best for you and being prepared as possible. Um, but I just want to give room for you to add anything that you'd want to add about this experience before I ask my final closing question.
1: No, I you know I think we've recapitulated fairly well that the the authenticity. Um, my point there, I think you know that may be part of something broader that you could label intellectual integrity. You know, a kind of honesty, a transparency, a decency, empathy, and personal authenticity, I think, all get wrapped up into something that you might call intellectual integrity. And and persuasion lies in that. You know, the the qualities of pathos, logos, um, ethos. the The things that go into persuasiveness, I think, are bound up in that.
0: Yeah, and it's really fascinating as well just to see how those themes remain consistent through every level of the trial process. Um, You know, they may be, certain qualities may be more important depending on what stage you're at, but again, as you mentioned, I mean, those are core qualities for a lawyer in every part of litigation, In, in practice, but in litigation especially. So before we wrap up here, Professor I wanted to take us back to the very beginning wrap all the way back around and you started by sharing your favorite course in law school you said first amendment you said property and now i was hoping that you feel a little bit more comfortable with me with the listeners with with the pod kit and you'd be willing to share your least favorite class in law school
1: i knew you were going to ask me that question i mean you tipped me off that you're going to ask me that question and off the top of my head, I couldn't think of a law school class I really hated, because mostly I, I just got lucky. I enjoyed law school, mostly, um, overall, anyway. so But I went back and looked at my law school school transcript. And this That's is amazing
0: really, preparation for a podcast. This is really
1: true, Ben. I, I looked at my law school transcript, and there on the transcript were not one, but two courses in, in corporate governance and finance you know, uh, or securities, secured transactions and finance, corporate governance and finance, two separate courses. And I have no recollection of having taken those courses. None. As I sit here today, even looking at my transcript and seeing them, I also have no recollection of who the professors might have been. And that brings me back to the, the reality is that what I mostly remember was the good instruction. The good, the good learning opportunities through connecting with an instructor, with a professor, and it wasn't about property. It was about the professor who was who was offering, you know, me a learning experience in a class called property. Uh, First Amendment, as I said before, yeah, I was substantially interested in that. Still find it substantially very interesting. Who wouldn't? But a lot of it was about the professor, the woman who taught it. Um and <laughs> I guess the least favorite classes must be the ones I just don't remember at all. I've blocked them for a reason and I don't remember the professors at all. And that that's the best answer I can give you. Um is that if they left a blank spot, I'd call that a, a failure or a or, you know a, a missed opportunity on my part, um, and therefore a least favored class.
0: Yes. I've actually found that my least favorite classes in college are the ones that I just remember nothing about. And I will highlight before we officially close, what's really funny about your answer is that you said secure transactions. And in my prior podcast, I interviewed the Cook County Public Defender, Sharon Mitchell Jr. When I asked him this exact same question, he said he actually remembered. He did not like secure transactions. You don't remember secure transactions, but I think it's interesting, the commonality between two criminal defense professionals not enjoying secure transactions. And I don't know what that means. I remember it's Article
1: 9 of the UCC. I remember that, secure transactions about Article 9 of the UCC. Um, I was also surprised to find that I got pretty good grades in
0: these two courses where I remember nothing. I don't remember taking them. Well, look where you are now. You've made it. You've made it to the podvocate.
1: I, I did. I made it to the Podvocate.
0: Thanks for well, having me. My pleasure, Professor Strang. Thank you again. And to all the listeners, I hope you appreciated part one and part two of Supreme Courting. And we will see you soon. Thank you. And that is all from us here at the Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team does want to hear from you. And if there is a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at luc.edu. And also visit our Instagram at thepodvocate for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Nekka Ugu and Andy Vandenbush. Our senior editors are Casey Callahan and Marcus McNeil. Our associate editors this year are Johannes Alvarez-Rivero, Karan Kushal. Maris Medina and myself, Ben Ratt. Special thanks to Associate Director of Student Affairs, Professor Radhika Sutherland, and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And finally, from Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.